This is going to be a controversial one no matter what. Hey, welcome to Album versus Album, everybody. <laughs> nice to see you. Hey. I'm your host, or co-host rather, Kale Judy. And with me as always is the high flying bird to my BDI, Lucas J. Lawrence. Ooh, that's some that's some good. depth there to the intro today. Yeah, welcome to Album versus Album. I know. <laughs> that's good. I like it. The Gallagher's. I'm, we're going to be saying those names a lot tonight. There's just so much material with those two. I figured, why not? You know, rather than comparing you to like Miley Cyrus and me to Hannah Montana or something. Although that truly, uh, that truly is what we are. <laughs> and uh, we have a we have a guest with us tonight, Lucas. Yes, we do. We have a master's fellow in artificial intelligence. We have a former DJ. Uh, a venerable expert on all things Britpop, your friend and mine, the one and only Jordan Eschberger. Welcome to the show. Welcome to the yeah, show. Hello. Thank you. <clears throat> it's a slight exaggeration on my um, academic pursuits, but uh, is, is that I, I wasn't sure what the the master master is fellow. Uh, I'm not sure what that means. Yeah, I think I think you can do a fellowship. I'm doing a master of arts in interactive arts and technology. That is basically, I think, the way to put it. I could say more, but it's not quite AI. But uh, sounds it kind of crosses cool. Over a bit. It, it's it's awesome. I'm loving it. Yeah, love it. Love it a lot. Jordan is a old friend of both of ours. He is a dear dear friend. Someone who I personally have spent many hours talking music with and. Uh, box sets, we share a deep love of the collectability of, you know, the things we love and having certain tangible elements. I did want to call out, you know, uh, rest in peace to the Blackbird, where for one summer, oh, yeah. Jordan was uh, had a Britpop DJ night where he, sp- he spun only vinyl. Wow. And a few of these tunes were uh, definitely in the rotation. Well, they better have been. Yeah, they were. And yeah, that was from like 9 p.m. till 2 a.m., I want to say, every Friday every yeah. Friday night for a whole summer, three months. Nice. I kind of burned out about it at the end also. <laughs> but um, I had a great time, um, you know, hauling uh, seven inches and 12 inches. And, well, That's a lot of uh, up, up, British up accent. And, yeah, I mean, it wasn't all that. I had a little, because quite frankly, who can afford that much um, 90s vinyl? But um, I, I would start with a little bit of uh, early kind of British usually, but garage, and then kind of transition into, I think actually some more like what do you call it, early aughts garage, like garage revival stuff a bit, and then smooth into some kind of nineties British stuff for a few hours, nevertheless, and then yeah, then kind of you get kind of ballady by the end of the night. So I'm um, yeah bringing out champagne and supernova or what have you, these types of songs <laughs> as as, a, as the alcohol is taking its effect. Yeah, and as the place is clearing out too a little bit, so yeah. it's like almost like you're just you just have like a giant room that you get to just play music for yourself too at the end of the night. Yeah, and there was a few times. I mean, this is a different topic, but there was a few times we had I had people who were visiting from like say Manchester, like from the north of England, being like, "Holy smokes, mate! Like I haven't heard these songs on vinyl in thirty years or this kind of thing." So oh, that's I, awesome. I definitely made a couple of people's trips to Vancouver. I mean, just a couple people, but. <laughs> I definitely blew their minds. Hey, man, no, I'm not sure they would have seen that. I, it, it felt like it. Yeah, it was a good time. Yeah, and I would like to do it again sometime. Kale and I've also talked about trying to do a, a get a um, a DJ morning, I guess, or like doing like a brunch somewhere on, um, yeah, some kind of hipster brunch place where we could do. Oh, that sounds uh, awesome. Ninety nineties vinyl. This mm-hmm. kind of thing. It would be cool if it was a, a cereal bar. You know, those places where you just can't get the cereal. Yeah, sure. Milk and you just just. Tons of novelty. Yeah, let's, I mean, I, I'll be there. Uh, you know, it's interesting too because every time I see you, Jordan, I'm pretty sure we end up talking about a band or a discography or, mm-hmm. you know, this is this is why we made this podcast is because this is a conversation we always have in the real world. It's like, 
we love to talk about a band and start arguing about what their best album is or you know best era. And the band you have chosen today is a band that I'm sure this conversation is happening about all of the time because there is a very deep, deep well of material to sort through, be it albums or be it uh, B-sides and, and rarities. Slip inside the eye of your mind Don't you know you might find Oasis, we are talking about the 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 okay. institution of uh-huh. Oasis. So yeah, yeah. why don't you start us off? Tell us why we're talking about Oasis today. Yeah, it's a good question. And I, <clears throat> I'm sure I could reflect uh, more upon it, but I think maybe if I had to sum it up for me personally, um, I think it's worth noting that I think for me, the, the first band I really like fell head over heels for, or felt, got deep into the well with was the beach boys back when I was in say grade four. Oh, yeah. Um, yeah. And so I, most of the music that I like, I feel like is quite derivative of, of the beach boys. So even like Jesus and Mary chain and, and some of these bands from the the 90s and afterwards that kind of pick up on uh, a lot of early Beach Boys um, dynamics. Um, And so I think it's a bit ironic that somewhere later on in my like kind of high school time, I I got into a band that was derivative of the Beatles, I suppose. I I never really became quite quite the Beatles fan that I was of, say, Oasis. But yeah, somehow Beach Boys first and then um, something about Oasis really appealed to me. I think for me, probably what it was was uh, being in kind of grades 11 and 12 for me at the time and listening almost exclusively to um, punk rock uh, at the time. And then coming across What's the Story Morning Glory, so the second uh, record by the band, um, where I think there was enough kind of punk sensibility or a couple songs that felt like like kind of bangers that I'd be into um, no matter who put it out. Uh, and then these, you know, more gentle and, and certainly more like artistic um, tunes alongside it. And I think there was something that felt for me more true about that record than some of the punk stuff I was listening to. There's a lot of huh. hope, I think, in Oasis Records that I resonated with, uh, even as a youngster, where a lot of the like, um, how would you say, the, this, the a lot of the despair and anger in punk rock, which I was also feeling. I think I just needed a break from that. And so I suppose... Uh, Oasis was like counterbalanced for me a lot of what else I was listening to in, in kind of punk rock had enough of that in there but was a quite a quite a you know quite a fun band and definitely I think a lot of like there's a lot of better tomorrow sort of in their lyrics and um, I definitely probably needed to hear that at the time so yeah. that's why I think I got really into that band yeah they were an oasis for you in the desert of punk rock uh, yeah you could say that yeah yeah <laughs> no Indeed. I, I definitely um we're talking about what's the story of morning glory. And we're also talking about don't believe the truth. And I was actually very surprised at how much hope and positivity there is because, especially in don't believe the truth, because I always saw them as kind of like cynical, you know, the, the British cynicism and like, you know, just their uh, public antics and their very famous uh, attitude towards other bands and their, yeah. non-stop uh, conflict as brothers. So I was really surprised. Yeah. I'm like, man, I, I forgot about What's the Story of Morning Glory being so positive and really getting into Don't Believe the Truth. I was like, man, this is like, I wouldn't call it a happy album, but it's definitely a hopeful no. album. Yeah, yeah, 100%. Yeah, and that was, I think it was that mix. And I, and I think that's also, I mean, there's other bands that are like that, and The Smiths comes to mind too, where you're sort of mixing the like the the music is on the one hand kind of perhaps uplifting, but the lyrical content is quite um, tragic or you know emotive, mm-hmm. um, or or vice versa. And I and I think um, yeah, a lot of the Oasis songs are you know quite pretty or quite aggressive, but oftentimes the there's kind of a, an underlying hope uh, or some sort of notion of a of a better tomorrow and things will be okay. Um, that I felt. Uh, yeah, there was a juxtaposition there, a bit of a tension there that I like. I, I like in all music still, um, but definitely those guys have it. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I think for for me, I, I can't really remember life without Oasis. Like they're just kind of always there. I mean, when I was like, sorry, what year is uh, Morning Glory? Is ninety ninety five? Yeah, so I was I was ten years old, you know. So 
Yeah. It's kind of like they were always around in the same way that like the Beatles were like someone very classic dad yeah. rock was. But yeah. I do remember, like I remember uh, the song Lila coming out and, and a mm -hmm. friend of mine, Matt Gibson, actually had purchased the CD and we were listening to it in his car. So that's the times I'd listen to Don't Believe the Truth. But yeah. even being that kind of like, you know, monolith of a, of a output, a band with a high output, um, yeah, I think I still always saw them as kind of like, I guess the word I would use is like deserving of the success. A lot of bands, a lot of pop music being also of sort of the punk rock. Um, punk rock was kind of my center. I mean, I'm being honest, punk rock then mostly like emo and like really bad, right. like Christian hardcore and stuff. <laughs> Um, I, I eventually got it around. Wasn't all, wasn't all bad, Lucas. No, but eventually I got around to the good stuff. Like I hated so many of the bands that had success because I was like, this doesn't feel authentic. And definitely, I feel mm. on track with you that I never, uh, I never questioned the authenticity of this band. You know? No, no, still not. I mean, they're they're very successful. You know, wealthy people, the two brothers. But even still, because um, I still do track them. I mean, they're still kind of who they are through and through and have the same wit and sense of humor. And um, yeah, same guys. Do you feel, Jordan, that if you could comment on the place that Oasis holds in your life now, how have you seen your relationship with the band change, I guess? Because if you think about it, they were such an important grounding band for you at that time. What kind of space do you feel like they occupy for you now in your mm. life? It's a good question. Um I don't know. I mean, I still love the tunes. So um, I would say they, to answer the question, frankly, like if Liz, my wife isn't home, um, I'll put it, I'll put Oasis on and I will, I'll sing it to myself. I'll, um, yeah, I mean, I still love the tunes, but I don't put it on that often uh, anymore. And I'm still interested in all the, the people who've been through the band too. So I do, like, I, I keep an eye on what they're up to. I mean, also I would say that, uh, like Liz and I, a couple of years ago, flew out to Dublin to see Liam Gallagher uh, play a, um, a solo set, but with Richard Ashcroft from The Verve open up. So I would, you know, so I still will travel to take in a gig. It's so kind of always been a dream, I suppose, to see Oasis in the um, in England uh, or in the UK or over in that part of the world. So that was at least um, a crack at that. So yeah, so I'll, I tracked the band. Um, I still follow their projects and still will travel. Certainly if the band reformed, I'd, I'd fly anywhere to go to go see it. But I, I don't listen to them that often. But when the tunes come on, uh, I still, still have a huge place in my heart. And yeah. and if I still, if I see their records for sale in a record store, like some early pressings, then I'll, I'll still shell out for it too. That's it's a bit nostalgic, I suppose. Great. That's so great. I'm, I'm at that part. Yeah. It's, it's rare that I still feel that way about a band. So that's, that's great. Mm -hmm. I mean, like that's, that's, you got to hold on to that stuff. That's, that's important. I would say for me that Oasis was similar to you, Lucas. They were just always around. And it was funny listening to both of these records because listening to what's the story of Morning Glory, I was like, oh, wait, Champagne Supernova is on this? Wait, and I didn't even know the name of, don't look back in anger, but I was like, I know that song, you know, like in high school, Great I knew like four of the singles off this record and I didn't know who they, I didn't know who sang them. Like, I was just like, I just knew the songs. They were just in a rotation on the local, like Brandon Manitoba radio station. But I, and you're going to hate these comparisons, Jordan, but like in my mind, That's okay. I never, <laughs> I've never thought of them. I never thought of them as a, as a British band the way I do so many mm -hmm. other bands like the Smiths. When I heard them, it was like, they sounded quintessentially British to me when I would listen to Wonderwall or um, some might say, I was just, <laughs> I was like, I, I listened to them in the same way that I remember hearing a lot of red hot chili peppers and like stone temple pilots. Like they're all kind mm -hmm. of like in that same mix of like alternative rock radio. And like, to me, when I hear the songs, they're deeply tied to my high school experience and like the prairies in a way, because like they didn't, and they didn't sound British to me. Like they sounded like they could have been from the Midwest or anywhere in the States. So I always just kind of assumed that who sang those songs, like I just didn't know they were British. And so it wasn't until much later mm. that 
that I was like, oh, this is Oasis and this is a British band. And this is actually stuff that really resonated with people in the UK. Because for me, I just felt like this was stuff that it was like what was on in sports check when I was like working at Walmart, you know, <laughs> like it was like that ubiquitous, like it was just everywhere. And so it wasn't until you and I became friends, Jordan, back in 2008 and we started talking music and you turned me on to Oasis. And in the whole 14 years of our friendship, I've it's I've listened to Oasis, but like I don't think I've ever like listened, listened to them like I did probably until honestly doing this episode. So it was yeah, yeah. really interesting to like spend real time with the records and because I loved and like the thing I would say is I'm a way bigger fan of the Gallagher brothers and I think I am their music. And that was the case for a lot of our because I love talking about them and hearing about them, but I was like, I don't listen to the tunes that much. And spending time doing this, I was like, oh, okay, this like gave me an appreciation for for some of the songs and also helped me kind of understand maybe where I've like struggled to like connect with them. But we'll we'll get into that. I think I think for me one of the things that really kept me into the band and and even as somebody who um speaking in our Vancouver, Canada context, um was really deeply involved in, in the music scene uh, here for years, uh, as, uh, as as Lucas and, and Kill also. But um, I think one of the things that helped me feel like I could still like them and not be too ashamed uh, of them was their lineage back to uh, Creation Records, which uh, they put their first three records out, out, out under. And, um, and Creation is one of the coolest record labels of all time, uh, putting out, you know, pretty much all the cool British rock and roll from kind of the late eighties uh, onwards uh, through this guy, Alan McGee uh, and his um, story of discovering Oasis is, is, is the thing of legend and, and all this. And, and the, the days spent at the creation records office with bands like primal scream and um, you know, sort of collaborations with Johnny Marr and Paul Weller. And so like, there's a, there's a ton of credibility in the band um, even though they, sort of rocketed past the the ceiling of being on an indie label and, um, you know, and sort of being, you know, kind of as it were on the dole um, uh, in England at the time. Um, yeah, they became superstars and the music, you know, became the stuff, you know, on the, on the background of, you know, kind of while you're shopping for deodorant. Um, but I think that just is, you know, a testament basically to like, you know, some pretty good tunes and that, uh, yeah, that, I guess became kind of part of the the furniture of the nineties basically. So what is that story about always getting discovered? Oh yeah. So yeah. So it's a, it's a cool story. I mean, so it, first of all, it, they were found uh, by El McGee up in Glasgow at a place called King Tut's Wawa hut. Uh, and I have, <laughs> and I have been to King Tut's Wawa hut in Glasgow. Cool. Um, it's still of, around. King yeah. Tut's oh yeah. It, it's a, it's a legit, it's a legit um, rock and roll bar uh, in Glasgow. Um, it's super cool. I'm really, really glad to have been able to go. Um, I forget the band I saw there. It wasn't the. It wasn't like whatever the 1975, but it was some band with a name exactly like that. And, um, anyways, uh, they were opening up for kind of like a girl punk band that they knew from, I guess Manchester, and they had they invited Oasis up there to get on the bill. So they weren't even, I don't think, scheduled to play officially. Um, and then McGee was, Alan McGee, who I believe is Glaswegian himself, um, wanted to go to the gig because he'd, I think, been dating somebody to do with the band or the, sh- the gig that night or whatever. So he shows up more uh, for social reasons anyways. Uh, Oasis comes on. I think they just played four or five songs. So maybe that's all they had, but also um, they were sort of taking somebody else's, part of somebody else's set. And so... They come on. There's there is a couple like video clips you can find of it, um, but yeah, they come onto the stage, which I've seen. You know, the stage is it's a very unique kind of layout for a bar, also, um, which I could describe if we want to get into it. But anyway, it's a really neat room, and um, yeah, and they come out, play four or five songs, and then the geese signs them basically on the spot. At the end of things, lots of feedback and a smattering of applause. I really do believe some things are meant to fucking be. I'm standing there with my kid sister Susan. She immediately went, you should sign these. And I'm like, let's hear the second song. And it was like, I'm signing these. And third song, I'm definitely signing these. Wow. And uh, and so now they're on creation and uh, they go and record 
definitely maybe twice they have to do it twice to get basically the album that they wanted and then you know the rest is is, is history as they say but yeah just a kind of a, a chance encounter with alan mcgee hmm. uh, in glasgow at king tut's wawa hut basically that's wild and man. what that's so wild and d- does he describe like what was it about those four or five songs that made him want to sign them I don't, that's a good question i would have to think that i think i mean it, if I had to, so they, that first record is, is, is pretty punk rock. Like it's, the songs are real fast and, um, kind of hard hitting. And, um, and I think Liam is quite a, I mean, he's a quite a unique, uh, front man and his voice at the time was pretty different to what else was going on. So I think there was quite a difference between what was happening in British rock uh, as Oasis was coming, was coming up. I think it was just coming out of the Manchester periods. So there's a lot of kind of dance and, definitely punk rock and stuff like this but um yeah they're able to kind of cut through with their sort of like beatles punk and with you know a front man you know people Liam's a handsome dude and he has a real kind of aggressive kind of um prowl up on stage and i think uh, maybe that combo i mean alan mcgee's been right more than he's been wrong with bands that Naples put out just a ton of cool stuff and uh yeah it was definitely a, a home run picking up yeah, the night in glasgow yeah Totally grand slam, yeah. yeah. And then, and then there, there we have that brings us to um, to what's the story of Morning Glory, doesn't it? Yeah, it kind of does. I mean, as as best as I can tell, putting the the history back together, they they put out definitely maybe, and they they tour a whole ton, um, and they tour America. So, Kale, as you were talking about, even some of these songs not sounding all that British. I mean, for me. Oasis sounds like putting England on the stereo. Like, yeah, me too. Sounds, I fully it just, agree. Dri- it just drips England uh, in every. It, it just sounds like an English chipper, whatever fish and chip shop, and, and just outside of a soccer so, match. Sorry. Just outside of a, a, a soccer match, hundred percent bunch of lads mm-hmm. uh, hanging out. Yeah, it just it is England for me to put it on, and and I, and also I think that's part of it. I think living in Vancouver, you know. Um, different regions have their musical moment. I think a lot of, you know, kind of pop, uh, pop punk and things like this all, you know, all sounds very, you know, very American, very Florida, very California, very. And, and I think to be in Vancouver where we don't get tons of that, but we do get a lot of rain. Um, we're similar in climate to, to certainly London. I, I, for me, like putting those records on just also feels like actually very like weather appropriate and, mm-hmm. and, and does feel kind of like almost tourism. Totally. And so much as like, I feel like I'm in England putting those records on, but I do wonder, you know, as they're touring, they toured the States, you know, a fair amount for that first record, how much influence, you know, maybe America rubbed off on them a little bit, some of the instrumentation or um, some of the songs um, perhaps. But anyways, one, one thing for me that kind of has blown my mind, I guess I knew this, but I never really thought about it. Was rewatching that Oasis Supersonic documentary a number of weeks ago, and they make the point quite a lot in that film that these these three, like uh, definitely maybe what's the story, Morning Glory, and Be Here Now. That was, and, and not to mention the B sides, which we'll get to, but um, all of that was in three years, which is just an incredible That's amount. Of, when you think of all the touring they did, I think they did. I don't know, saw some number, 500-something shows in support of like whatever, what's the story, whatever it was. Wow. It's an insane amount of shows uh, for, for both records and then to come out the other side and put up Be Here Now. Um, they're very prolific and it's an, just an incredible amount of, yeah, quality, <laughs> incredible songs that came out in a, in a re- really short period of time. Um, so yeah, what's the story, Morning Glory came out, you know, basically a year after, uh, definitely maybe or something like this. That's so um, fast. Yeah, that's like so Beatles. Fast. I remember the Beatles when you look at their discography, you look at it and you're like, it's like their entire career is like this tiny chunk of time, and all of it happened then. Yeah, exactly. It almost maybe proves maybe that you, you got to put pressure on stuff, you know? Yeah, maybe it's this is a good time to just quickly run through their discography. The first Oasis record came out in 1994, was definitely maybe followed up. The next year, in 1995, by What's the Story, Morning Glory. Two years later, in 1997, we had the release of Be Here Now. And then three years after that, in 2000, Standing on the Shoulder of Giants. Followed in 2002 by Heathing Chemistry. And then we had a three-year period where there were no releases. And then in 2005, we had Don't Believe the Truth. 
Finally, the last Oasis record came out in 2008 called Dig Out Your Soul. And that is their discography. This is obviously not including B-sides, EPs, and all that. Um, this is just a straight discography. So seven records from 1994 to 2008. Jordan, all their album covers have the Black Oasis logo. And then yeah. for some weird reason, 2000 and 2002, you got Standing on the Shoulder of Giants yeah. and Healing Chemistry. It doesn't have yeah. that classic Oasis logo. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. One's, I'd love to talk. I mean, one is kind of messed up, but the other one literally just doesn't have it. <laughs> yeah. So the so I think I think the better way to frame that question is to describe what was happening on those first three records. And there was a guy called Brian Cannon who had a design firm um, called Microdot. And Microdot had been working with the Verve before ever working with Oasis. And I believe there's some story about Brian Cannon introducing Noel Gallagher to Richard Ashcroft, which is how those two bands became friends. But it was this designer uh, in the middle. And the artwork on the Verve is also really cool, especially on those early records. And it's Brian Cannon doing it again. Um, so Brian Cannon for me, and, and also I would even attribute, you know, I've gone on to work in, in technology and design kind of industry. Um, and I would say in those early days, I, mean, I, I want to say that the micro dot sleeves of the first three Oasis records and all the singles and the master plan, which is uh, like a B-sides uh, compilation from those first three records. <clears throat> uh, the design of all that stuff is to me just like incredible and a huge part of my affection for the band and um, yeah, just the attention to detail that they put into the concepts of the art and the, the um, intricacy of the photography and the direction, the art direction uh, of these, uh, of the albums, but also every single, like they took it all very seriously. Um, but everything changed after Be Here Now, or ultimately then I guess after that master plan um, kind of box set uh, compilation, the whole thing kind of um, changed. A bunch of the band members left. Brian Cannon no longer worked with the band doing art. This guy, Paolo Hewitt, who'd written a book about the band and toured with him as a DJ. He didn't hang out with them anymore. Like it just became at that, like after that period, it became a business and some of the guys in the band left, other folks left uh, and everything basically changed after the fact. So I think the real answer to the question just has to do with um, Brian Cannon almost operating like a member of the band as a designer uh, and just having this in incredible kind of artistic vision for the band and saw it through and whoever wrote the, you know, paid the bills, um, let him go, let him do it. And that's a huge part of my, I think, longstanding affection for the band is just the, yeah, uh, is the design aesthetic. They're wild the album covers because there's those, when you look at them, you're, you're not really sure why you like it so much, you know, especially for what's the story morning glory. You know, you're looking at a picture of, of yeah. people walking on a street, essentially, but something about the quality of the photo yeah. and the movement mm -hmm. of the photo, it's always yeah. it's always been an album cover that uh, I can stop and look at. Kale, I believe yeah, it's, it's time for Fast Facts, right? Fast Facts, Fast Facts, What's the Story, Morning Glory, is the second studio album by English rock band Oasis. It was released on October 2nd, 1995 by Creation Records, produced by Owen Morris and the group's guitarist and main songwriter, Noel Gallagher. The record initially received lukewarm reviews from mainstream critics. Many deemed it inferior to their first release, Definitely Maybe, citing the songwriting and production particular points of criticism. However, Important to note that critical opinion towards the album completely reversed in ensuing years. And now it's generally considered a very important record of both the Britpop era and the 1990s in general. It sold over 22 million copies worldwide, and it is one of the best-selling albums of all time. And that is Fast Facts. Fast Facts, wow. Okay, so with What's the Story of Morning Glory? This is the second record that Oasis put out. And... I mean, let's let's just say like this record is this is a monster record. Like the yeah. amount of hits on yeah. this out record is unbelievable. Like even revisiting this album, I couldn't believe it. Like I always I almost made a joke. Like I I was like, oh, I'm gonna say that like my hero is like Champagne Supernova, and because I was like, wait, that's not their song, right? And then it was like, wait, that's on this record too. <laughs> I was like, and it's the last song. Yeah. Like it was actually like kind of blew my mind how many hits were on this 
this album. It, yeah, it's yeah. wild. It's wild. And like this album, like you talked early there when we started, you talked, Jordan, about nostalgia. And it's like mm-hmm. everything about this album feels nostalgic. The tempo of the music that just, it's never in a hurry, you know? The, um, yeah. Uh, it's, it's pretty mellow in moments, but you, but you, you're, you can picture people just belting along at outdoor music festivals. Outdoor mm-hmm. music festivals. Um, right. The, the, the way the guitars are played, the way the guitar solos, it's also 90s, but also it's like, it's like if, if you could say like, what did 90s rock sound like, you know, and you could just basically play Champagne Supernova. Like, this is what 90s rock the culmination mm-hmm. of all that points to and and it's kind of a type of music that ceased to exist like we're not patient enough for this music anymore uh probably the closest thing i could think of that was new and fresh i actually thought about this for a long time was uh remember that song by harry styles it was called sign of the times mm-hmm. that was the last I, song. I don't <laughs> what was the last song i remember hearing when i was like it sounded like an oasis song to me and it's it's a slow burn of a song that really earns its moments, and that's something that most music cannot mm. afford to do, because in the first 30 seconds, we'll just click onto a different song on the playlist, you know? Um, yeah, it was a trip to re-listen to this record in its entirety. It's something I have not done since probably high school, honestly. And I enjoyed mm. it a lot. The first time, anyway. Good. <laughs> Would... Uh... It was, I mean, to that point, you said to Lucas, and I know one of the things I appreciate about your love for vinyl, Jordan, is uh, the intentionality that comes with like listening to the tunes as well. You know, like when you drop mm-hmm. that needle, it's not as convenient and it's not as, you can't be in the bath and put on a record, you know, like you have to, it, it comes with intention. And I think it's cool that uh, also when this record came out, kind of, I think to the point you were making, Lucas, like the songs, did take their time to pay off. And it was interesting in doing some of the research for this as well, that that sounded like a very intentional move by Noel in doing a lot of the songwriters that this was like a record where they were doing like big choruses and they were going for, for ballads, which I think is interesting because for me, like I don't have a ton of context with definitely maybe, but knowing it was like even interesting to read just like snippets from some of the reviews when what's the story came out where people were basically lamenting it wasn't definitely maybe, you know, they're like, Oh, it's different or it's not what we thought is what seems to be the, you know, prevailing, uh, critique. One, one critic had something pretty interesting. The, uh, Robert Hilburn from the Los Angeles times welcomed what's the story as a counterpoint to what he called the prevailing despair of the decades rock music, which, yeah. uh, which I thought was very similar yeah. to what the point you were saying, Jordan, but do you what what do you think was in what do you think was in the band that made them want to go this direction from the first record? What do you guys think was like kind of propelling them to do this kind of a record? That's a really good question. And I wish I had a I wish I wish I knew the I wish I knew the answer. I, I think as best as I can tell, they um yeah, you you hear stories like that Noel had this record basically, or had written much of it kind of around the same time or in the same kind of process as writing definitely maybe. And would have kind of like batches of songs and had some idea about how things would kind of play out. Um, he also talks about how there was no real master plan or, or what have you, but it does seem like he had batches of songs and had or parts and kind of knew approximately how some of them might fit together. Uh, and keeping in mind, this was, you know, they put the one the one record out in 94, toured a ton, then put the other record out in 95. Um, so that's probably true. And then also, allegedly, you know, he during With the Story Morning Glory, he has, or he's been writing or writing parts that end up on Be Here Now. So he's kind of always a bit one record ahead. Um, but definitely this record sounds like much more, um, is in many ways, you know, more mature and, and much more sophisticated. Also, um, you know, relative to the bands that were also on creation, um, you know, it wasn't enough for the Oasis guys to sort of make it on like the, the country's big kind of cool uh, indie label, but they wanted to be legitimate rock stars. And I think that comes from really being kind of brought up in, in Manchester um, to a working class family. Their mom left the dad and she raised three boys and they were, 
you know, kind of stories about lifting or stealing um, lawnmowers to get money for weed. And they're just these kinds of guys. And Noel um, ended up kind of trapped touring a bit with uh, In Spiral Carpets, this other kind of quite legendary band from the time um, beforehand. But there wasn't much going on for these guys. And so I do think that, you know, they, were, they weren't, you know, satisfied to be um, indie darlings, which they were on the first record, but they really wanted to just go for it. And there's been a lot of folks who's, uh, um, in that 33 and a third book, Kale, I think you gave me uh, mm-hmm. for definitely maybe, maybe they, they actually like in Oasis a lot to a lot of hip hop kind of rap um, stars uh, and just that sort of like ambition to just go huge um, and, and, and just go for it and forget the critics and just go monster and, uh, and so I do think that they had a, like an ambition to shoot past like a cool indie record and, and they really wanted to, to mm-hmm. be the Beatles and to, to conquer, you know, America and, and to be the biggest band they could possibly be. And so I, maybe it's somewhere in there, the songwriting certainly matured along the way. Um, everything kind of fell into place. Um, so I think there's a bit of luck there too, probably. But Have you guys ever seen the TED talk that uh, I believe David Byrne does where he's talking about you write for the place you want to play? Like uh, mm. and with a like an unconscious bias, you you start writing. He shows like the early Talking Head stuff, and it's like it's very tight and uh, experimental. And then mm. and then he shows as they go on. It's like the 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 sounds are bigger and more simple to play and 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 more anthemic and stuff. And he's like, we didn't think about this, but you can track a lot of careers that way as well. And it's almost like yeah, Oasis that. knew like from touring, they're like, we need like you need to sing along like you have to sing along for it to be yeah. successful and like this record is full of choruses you sing along with yeah stadium stadium tunes right stadium not tunes. you know yeah there's stadium tunes the, the pretty well the whole record is just a stadium album honestly yeah and the, the production value you know it's a very layered record it's big mm-hmm. sometimes the drums are really low in the mix because the guitars are huge and then sometimes you got like sound effects and stuff happening over top of it it's very like it's very like 90s indulgent like we have some money to blow on the budget so let's like take our time with it which is cool yeah so so but 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 they uh they recorded that record in 12 working days so they did i I was just watching a documentary about it so they yeah they put it they did one they finished one song a day and nobody in the band knew the songs except for Noel. So in the day, they would have learned the song, gone in to play it, tracked each um, instrument and vocal. That's wild. Uh, and then basically worked in production into the night and the next day start the next song. So they, That's wild. they did it in basically just a couple of weeks. Yeah. Doesn't give you much time, the to, of all time. To, to overthink it. No, exactly. And that was, I think, a point. I think, well, yeah, one of you guys made earlier, but yeah, I think that's true. I, they, they, they didn't, it's, it's, um, yeah, it's quite, it's quite impressive. <laughs> it, it blows my it's, mind. I mean, I can't do, I can't do much in a day. You know what I mean? I don't get much done. And, uh, yeah, to, if you have the right drugs that. though, I guess, but I also, that's an interesting thing. I mean, definitely is part of it, but I also have heard like, you know, that that's all a little bit, uh, you know, almost like if that were true, they wouldn't have been able to put out this much stuff. Um, yeah. Like that, they, they were really hardworking and super professional, except when it came to the pub, and when it came to like when it was time to work, it was time they worked, and oh. when it was time to party, they partied so hard. I mean, my personal take would be is that because I used to always make sure I was ready for the studio, studio ready. I didn't want to be embarrassed and want to waste money. But the times where we just kind of said, okay, like we got to finish this now. So let's finish it now. I I do think when you put some limits on yourself, when you're creating something, I find that something internal happens where this gear shift and sometimes it it can be really good. It can be really a good um, time of creation. You know, when you say like, here's the parameters, you have to fit it in this parameter. If that makes Mm. sense. Yeah. Yeah. I wonder, I wonder if that, if you kind of nailed, you know, what you were just saying, Jordan, part of how they really, when they sat down to work, they worked, you know, and they're in the studio and they're like, all right, cool. This is like, cause it seems like even like, I don't know a ton about Liam, but he just seems like both like such a, <laughs> a an asshole, but also so deeply wanting people to like, like what he's doing and like to connect with people. And I could see him when he's in the studio, he's like, okay, I know what I need to almost like maybe that would be good for him. You know, where it's like, 
Liam, this is what you need to do right now. You need to like deliver this performance and you just be like, fuck yeah. Like he's just. Well, I, yeah. So on that point, as far as um, with him in the studio. So apparently, I mean, he got into, there was one uh, episode um, in, in recording. What's the story? Morning glory where, you know, he spent quite a bit of time in the pub because he would only have to come in and lay down his vocals once. So one, one song a day, one vocal a day, but one vocal is technically like three, four, five minutes. Uh, of work right and so and for example so the story goes on champagne supernova that's just what that's just his only take of doing that song and it's he, he does that's like crazy. he just absolutely crushes it wow. and so that's so a seven minute song that's seven minutes of work in that day you know i mean he you know learns the song a little bit i'm sure um goes in bangs it out and the rest of the day he's not at the studio so he's <laughs> he's hanging around the pub and so so they just go get him when it's his time to sing and when he's got to kind of figure out his parts and then go, go do them. So he's not working a lot himself. <laughs> okay. And so there's this one, there's a, especially on that record. Uh, and when we get to the next record, he, he's, he's a lot more involved in, um, there's a, uh, and then, so there's one major blow up recording this record where he brought back, you know, it sounds like the whole village. They recorded this record out in, I think in Wales, at a place called Rockfield. And, uh, he brings back like what sounds like the whole village into the studio. Like everyone who's Noel hanging out at the pub. Yeah, they run the pub. So the pub comes back to the studio um, and and brings them into the studio. It turns out there's a lot of space. There's like lots of, it's, it's like a farm and there's lots of different buildings and stuff. But Liam brings the crew into the into the studio where Noel and Owen Morris are, are working away, completing whichever song it was, you know, on deck that day. Um, and so then that turns into, you know, you're wrecking our, our time and we're trying to work. And then the two brothers get into fisticuffs and then there's a cricket bat and then Liam breaks his hand and Noel... And Alan White, the new drummer, drive back to London and they take a week off, basically, um, where nothing much happens. Everyone sort of disperses and then they regather uh, at this, at the back at Rockfield and finish the record. So that's a great story. That's so Liam was getting up to some hijinks. Yeah. <laughs> that's a great story. It's very rock yeah, so and roll. He's still, still, still a bit of an asshole. There used to be a Canadian radio show that would like air at Sunday nights called The Ongoing History of New Music or something. Oh yeah, and it was just oh, yeah, I yeah to it. and he has this like four part or two part three part series on like just fights that the Gallagher brothers had, and that was one of them I remember. Oh yeah, and they're just all yeah, they usually involve someone being drunk. It's uh, it's a good stuff. Drunk and some sort of weapon. Usually there's some apparatus. Someone gets hurt. Someone flies away. Someone skips a show. There's always yeah. some audio oh, yeah. recording of something. It's great. It's, yeah, wibbling, wibbling rivalry. It's such a I have great, that seven inch too. It's yeah. just such a great uh, lore at this point, you know. It's gone. It's. it's oh, it's I mean, yeah, yeah. They were. They were. They had it all. So, we're always trying to define a tasty treat correctly, and I think. Each time we get a little closer, and I would say a tasty treat is a a moment on the record, a particular moment in a song. It can be a musical part, it can be even a vocal part, but just something that stands out as a special, tasty treat to you. Um, I'll go first because this one sounds so obvious, but I was like, even before I listened to the record, I knew it was going to be a tasty treat. And that is the um, the guitar. I don't know if you call it a solo or a riff, but at the end of Champagne Supernova, there's just that, like mm. the song's already so good. The melody's great. The lyrics are rad. I remember feeling like such a punk when I was in grade seven or grade eight. Just be like, where were you? Well, we were getting high. Yeah. Hopefully yeah. mom and dad didn't hear that. Um, but yeah. this guitar kicks in and it's just simple, but it is. It just elevates us on that one more notch right up. Um, you probably know what I'm talking about. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's yeah, just, yeah, exactly. Oh, yeah, it's yeah. such a great moment. And it ends the album with just so great. And I don't know if I don't know who who's playing that particular lick or solo there, but um Paul Weller, uh, who's the you know frontman singer, songwriter of the jam, um, he, he guests on that song um, as both a guitarist and backing vocalist. So cool. it, it's possible that's it's, it's most likely that that's Noel, and maybe I should know the answer to that. But it could be Paul Weller, which which would be I don't know what he was doing quite on the on the song, but um, that would be 
extra dope or extra tasty. Yes. I, I, I actually wrote, it's a tasty treat forever because that's always my favorite part of that flow. Yeah. What's your first tasty treat, man? It's just, I'm just having such a nostalgic flashback of like driving around Brandon, Manitoba and my friend's like minivan listening to that on like a shitty radio. I don't know. So <laughs> just so tinny. Wild. One thing that was really interesting to me in listening to this record is obviously there's a lot of the big singles that people know, but a couple like songs I wasn't really as aware of roll with it was actually not a song. I didn't, I didn't realize that was the first single off the record, nor did I realize that was uh, the single that was competing with blur that they both dropped their singles on the same day. And lots has been talked about oh, like right, that. We don't yeah. need to, we, we don't need to get into the blur Oasis um, battle of Britpop, but it is an interesting detour. And if you are interested in looking up, we, we, I think with the amount of material we're going to get through, like, we'll save that for another time. But if you're interested, like give that a Google, it, it is interesting, but I really like that song a lot, but I would actually say another song that I liked. I really liked the opening to Hey Now, which I did not really know or mm. was very familiar with. And I think the opening to Hey Now is very catchy. It grabs you. I think a lot of the songs do a really good job of they have really great hooks. Like they really hook you in early on. And I was like, I wonder if some of these other songs that like people don't talk about as much are gonna be good in the same way. And I was like, oh yeah, most of them are. Like Hey Now was one where I was like it was really hard to pick a zero for this record, and that was when I was like, I don't know this one as well. And I listened to it, I was like, oh, that's a great song. It's just that opening, man. It's can't deny it, you know? Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't know. It's just so hard because there's so many huge moments on this record. Yeah, it's a very dense record and, for that. Yeah, there's a lot there. But uh, yeah. How about you, Jordan? What's the tasty treat for you? I, I got to say, so I still love the bangers on this record. Like, I still love, I love Hello, the, the opening track. Um, and I really love Morning Glory. Um, and so I would say just those opening notes that when the guitar kind of cries to bring in uh, the drums on Morning Glory, just the intro to Morning, Morning Glory is perhaps one of my favorite moments in music ever. And it's so big and so epic and so, um, I, I, you know, in, in preparation for this, I heard, I think it's Noel's described that song uh, as riot music and uh, the, the way he kind of wrote it and and that intro um, the way that song comes in uh, is, is riot music and I I just I love it I've always loved it and I'll always love it yeah a lot of always in this this tasty treat forever always yeah live forever live forever is one of their biggest songs first record the um, the, uh, the, the morning uh, the morning song morning glory uh you know that 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 song i knew i'd heard it before but i was always surprised when i when i got to that listening to it the last few weeks i was like oh man this song is like this song punches versus like the rest of the kind of like dirginess of the record that one really mm-hmm. has a punch to it um i'll just do two uh, tasty treats um it's it's pretty hard to just like narrow down things um, I really wanted something on Wonderwall because you know, like Wonderwall, those first four chords—they're probably the most recognizable. Just you start playing that, no one, you know. And there's the meme, like anyway, here's Wonderwall. I just love that meme. It's great, and I don't hate that song. You know, I oddly no, it's a good song. It's like there's so many overplayed songs. I could, I never want to hear, but that one always I'm like, all right. Uh, but I think my other it's the vocal, yeah, definitely. Uh, my other tasty treat I want to just throw in there is the obvious uh, Beatles harmonies in the song roll with it. It's just, um, it almost sounds like Paul and John are singing together again in a way, you know, just the, 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 it's like they're trying to do it, but they're also just being themselves. It's cool. Also, another just side comment, a lot of wah guitar. You don't hear much wah anymore. Mm-hmm. The wah days are over. I uh, killed you another tasty treat. Yeah, I similarly was wanting to, I was really wanting to kind of pick something off Champagne Supernova. I think that whole song, especially as an ending song, is a real tasty treat. It's like not, not emotional is not the word I want. How both anthemic and 
introspective it is at the same time. I think it has this really interesting blend of like they're almost opening the kimono a little bit to like be like here's all of like how this here's how much we want this in a way to like make you make mm-hmm. you really connect, which I think is really cool. But I'm sneaking that one in because my official tasty treat <laughs> is actually uh, the Keith Richards um, guitar, and some might say, I think you know between the it's like almost like if they were going Beatles on um, Roll With It I think they were going Stones on Some Might Say especially yeah. with the harmonies in it too but it's like so Keith Richards in that guitar yeah um, I was it's like it's T-Rex right it's like that's like almost directly a T-Rex song I think yeah and and they love T-Rex and um, I think again I've read I've read a couple of Oasis books anyways and just hearing about like going to Manchester City football matches in the 70s when they would have been growing up um, and you'd hear, I guess, T-Rex songs um, at, at those football matches. Rad. Um, so that's, that's perhaps where that comes from a bit. The, the way sports is here, it's just not the same. But yeah, Kale, I the first time I listened to this record through, I was like, oh yeah, we're going like classic on this riff. But then of course it changes pretty quickly. But yeah, right at the beginning of it, you're almost like, did I switch records? Yeah. Yeah. I also love the lyrics to some might say like that to me lyrically is just a super fun kind of playful um, song and uh, yeah and, yeah I, just, I love the lyrics from that song it's like the part in the chorus when they're like in the rain and they does that little like I'm not sure what it's they call that on these vocals but there's like uh, that's so good uh, any more Jordan for you I mean just to pick one for Wonderwall. I do love, uh, you know, the, the cello that comes in at the end too, gets me crying in my beer. But also I think maybe the, um, cast no shadow, um, is a song kind of later on the second half of the record, um, which is written for and about Richard Ashcroft of the verb. It's kind of a, a tribute to, to him, uh, in a way too, just all like dude who cast no shadow. <laughs> Um, literally, but, uh, but yeah, I just, I, I love the sort of this, I guess the sentimentality behind, uh, the sentiment behind that song, um, and, and choosing to, you know, at the peak, at, at the height of their career, sort of dedicate a song to, to a guy who was kind of just before them. And I, and I know they've always been big Verve fans. Um, and so, yeah, I love that song, but I also love that it's written for, uh, Richard Ashcroft and, um, I think it's really classy. And I also love that Paul Weller is on Champagne Supernova. So just bringing a little, not royalty, but um, yeah, just bringing some cool dudes on the record. That's cool. That's a cool little uh, insight into that song. Heroes. Should we start negative? Should we start with zero? I think we should start with zero. Okay, yeah. so a zero is not, you're not saying it's the worst song. It's just maybe a song you'd cut or like your least favorite song on the record. So Jordan, do you That's have great. one? Can you even bring yourself to choose a zero on this record? Sure, yeah. So start with zeros. Is that yeah. what we're doing? Start with zeros. Yeah, I think picking a least favorite song on this record is is super tough every song is epic and and every song that made it to the record beat out some pretty incredible b-sides to be here so um they're all winners <laughs> but if i had to pick one um i would pick hey now as as my zero of this record or at least as my least favorite of the tracks and um, and I, I think it's interesting i don't know what it what it quite means if there's anything to read into it but the band never did play it live uh, either so perhaps they feel the same way, or perhaps it's just hard to play live. I'm not quite sure, but um, for some reason or another, they they, they didn't uh, bring us into the live set ever. I think it means. <clears> so yeah, that 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 would be yeah. May anyways that yeah that'd be my zero if I had to have a zero. But I I do love mm-hmm. pretty well every track on the record. Yeah. Well, I'm gonna just jump right in because that's my zero as well, and mostly because you know, I kept moving around. I'd listen to the album, and be like, okay, that's probably my zero, but then the next time I listened to it, you know, I. I thought maybe roll with it, but then I liked roll with it more the second time through. And then I thought some might say, but then I liked that more. But every time I sort of felt the same way about it. And it's not that yeah. it's nothing that I dislike. And I just think if you cut it, I don't think 
you know, like most, it wouldn't change the flow to me. Yeah. Mm -hmm. What about you, Kaylee? Yeah, that's tough. I, I'm kind of in, I'm, I, I totally hear what you're saying. I, I'm in agreement with you, but on Hey Now, like it's a little lighter fare than, than some of the other songs on here. Um, I've had a, I've realized I've had a habit of picking zeros that are like big songs the last few times. I dabbled with Don't Look Back in Anger at one point because like I just found that song kind of, um, there's a couple parts in that song I don't really like, but I was like, I can't pick that. It's such a good song still. I was like, I can't pick that. It's just, that's too obnoxious. Like, that's just ridiculous. <laughs> so, uh, uh, it's tough. This You're is a struggling. tough one for me. Well, you think it's I, more tough for you than Jordan? It's definitely not more tough for me than Jordan. I just, <laughs> I, I, I just hate to call it my zero because there's aspects of the song I like, but I think I'm just going to go with what I wrote down. But I actually said my zero was was Cast No Shadow mm. because uh, I don't think it's a bad song. I love ballads. I especially love there's a lot of ballads in this record, but I love English crooners. Um, I think what bugs me about this song and just listening through the record, I like the sentiment even. I liked, I liked reading that. Um, Noel wrote it on the train to the studio and it was the last song on the record that he wrote. Um, But I just find, I actually find the vocal performance just a bit too cheesy and I really think the background vocals on the song are not very good in my opinion. Mm, With with Noel. Yeah, I don't like them. Uh, They really, they pull me out of the song and that was the reason because I, but I really like Hmm. parts of it but that those background vocals, I was like, Ugh, I just like would, I would have cut that completely if it was me. So again, but not saying that like I dislike the song entirely, like yeah. I like the sentiment, but I just there were things in the production production choices that I was like, I just. Uh, I mean, I love that song, but I but I hear you about the vocals. That's really interesting. And next time I listen to it, I'll I'll give it a, another go. I think. Um, I mean, I think looking at the longer trajectory, like. Oasis, the, the longer Oasis trajectory. I think you see Noel really develop as a singer. He always had his, had a, like a very versatile voice, um, but just his ability to kind of own his voice and, and and own a song, I think took him a long time to really get there. And and so, yeah, I've, I've at times struggled with some of Noel's um, background vocals and vocals in general. I'm, I mean, and nowadays in, in, in the Oasis world, you're either kind of like Team Liam, Team Noel. Um, mm-hmm. There's such a thing. And uh, I'm, I mean, I'm a team Liam person and I love the way he sings. Uh, so in general, I, I like Liam songs over Noel songs. Yeah. Um, and, and we get more Noel stuff, uh, more Noel singing on the next one. We're we do. About. Yeah, that's true. Um, yeah. Interesting. Interesting. Kale. I'm wondering now let's, let's go backwards now. Mm. Kale. What's, what's your hero? There were a couple contenders, but I was like, I, I knew pretty early on I was, and it's, a, it's not going to, I think surprise anybody, but uh, my hero is is definitely Wonderwall. I think wow. it's like w- one of the best songs of the '90s for sure. It's like you just can't like. I mean, you could say there's a better song on that record, but how? It's like that's like the one of the biggest songs ever. It's like how can you like? And there's so many great songs in that, but it's like Wonderwall is kind of like you just completely nailed the bullseye and and it's and like you said earlier, Lucas, it's so overplayed, but there's something still really special about it. And I'm just like, to me, I'm, it like, I'm just like, I think, like, I, I was debating Champagne Supernova, Roll With It at one point I really liked, like, but I was just like, come on, like, you know, it's gotta be, it's got, to me, it's like, it's gotta be Wonderwall. It's like, what, what else, what other song could you say is bigger than that, that song? Yeah, yeah, but that's not, that's not a, or maybe, maybe that is a hero, it's not my podcast, but like, also, it's your favorite song on the record, just making yeah. sure. Yeah, it's your personal yeah. opinion. Back yeah, yeah. No, I'm not. It's not. It doesn't have to be the biggest song for sure. But yeah, to yeah. me, it's like it, it's. There's a, a reason com- it's the biggest song. Yeah. yeah. To me, it's like a combination of like. But do I want to listen to Wonder all the time? Like, no. But I, I'm like, I listen to this record. It's funny because the first couple of times I listened, to it, I actually skipped Wonder because I have heard it so many times. Because I was like, I want to listen to the other songs. But I, I went for a walk today and I listened to both records again and like listening to Wonder Wall. It's like, man, this song is just like, yeah, classic. So good. Backbeat. The word is on the street that the fire in your heart is out. Yeah. Great. Those are again very nineties lyrics, even. Mm-hmm. Didn't, I'm have, sure. didn't necessarily yeah. make sense, just had to sound cool. 
Um, my yeah, you know, I, I hear what you're saying, Cal, but my my hero is, and you know, I remember the first time I heard this record. This is the song I latched onto is uh, "Don't Look Back in Anger." I just love mm-hmm. the the soaring the vocals over the descending chords in the chorus. Is just uh, right every time I can just I want to see them live just so I can be in the crowd singing along. You know, it's, yeah, 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 I love that song. Good choice. And the um, it's it's one of the mysteries of that song is also who is Sally. Um, mm. So Sally can't wait. It's just like who who is this this Sally? Apparently she's just like fictional. fictional the name just worked in the, um, in the lyrics, maybe. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it sounded it sounded cool. And it's also it's for me it also is it's so British that song. Like I know we we're talking about it sounding British. That one's from something I just really can hear his accent, and it, I picture. Yeah. Uh, everything about London I know, you know, uh, yeah. London Bridge, James Bond, all the yeah. fish and chips, everything. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, also, the the album art for the single, uh, it's a, very, a super elaborate uh, photo, too, if you haven't seen the art for that, too. I just uh, oh, I love okay. the art for that. Uh, yeah, I, I mean, I love the record. Uh, and it was, unfortunately for me, but I think just in part my age, I'm just a couple of years too young to have gotten into Oasis on time. Um, this was my first Oasis record. Uh, and like I say, um, I was kind of a punker at the time. So yeah, for me, uh, and I've said it before, but I, like for me, Morning Glory um, is just like the bangingest tune, one of, the, one of them ever. And, and uh, it just gets me, gets me going. Um, so I, I love that song in terms of a hero. If I had to pick something a bit more with a bit more artistic credibility or whatever, I think I would go. Some might say is like maybe my actual like kind of trusty, legit single. Um, it's the first single off the record, um, and it's yeah, just kind of mid tempo. But again, I love the I love the lyrics to that song. Um, it, in some ways, it kind of reminds me thematically of Bittersweet Symphony, as you were sort of saying the lyrics there. Um, kind of a working person's. Uh, tune um, and uh, and yeah, I, I, I love it thematically and, uh, mm-hmm. and 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 the guitar work and and the the, the kind of um, glam kind of riff and um, yeah, I, I think for maybe from a credibility standpoint, <laughs> uh, that would be my favorite. But I think my actual like my actual favorite is, is probably putting on Morning Glory and putting on my shoes and just heading out to to do the day. So I, I, I love nice. that. I love that too. So I don't know. That's too, I know I'm cheating by doing two, but Hey man, you can cheat. That's a great choice too. I, I think morning glory is a, like, if I was like picking a song that you would go for, I'm like, that's a great choice. I feel like that makes a ton of sense. I just feel like there's no, there's no wrong answer here, but I feel like no. what's funny is that if you were DJing at the blackbird, you would be laughed out of the room. If you put on Wonderwall. you know what I mean? It would just be <laughs> too, like too obvious. But if you put on some yeah. might say on that's the like, nose, yeah, it's too on the nose. But you yeah. put on some might say, people would yeah. be like, yes, like it's like it hits yeah. that that balance, and that's where this record so interesting because it veers in all these different directions so hard in certain songs. You know, I'm surprised. Uh, I totally thought someone's favorite song would be "She's Electric." Yeah, it's like anything, right? Like anything is a world unto itself, and I think you know you got to pick your worlds. You can only do so many as a person, but. Um, I, I, I do think it's a shame <laughs> to only know Oasis from the grocery store because those songs are not their coolest songs. And um, even the context, right, it really says really says something. I mean, I remember picking up my CD of What's the Story of Morning Glory and listening to it in the car all the time. I, I had no, certainly Wonderwall had broke over here. And, and in fact, I think I was thinking about the other day, there was a... Um, a friend of mine named Monique in high school who had gone to the Oasis show on the What's the Story Morning Glory tour in Vancouver, which I didn't go to. Um, but the the band, you know, left. I don't know if you guys know the story, but this is one of the Oasis Vancouver moments was um, them leaving the, the the stage and canceling the gig because somebody had thrown a shoe um, at the stage, Whoa, and so they 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 uh, and then they walked off, and that was the end of the gig. And so I remember being at school the next day. And like, I'm pretty sure it was this Monique who was like, "Yeah, I was at the show and um, the Oasis, and yeah, they they didn't they didn't play. They 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 walked off after how many songs? Someone threw, threw a shoe, and that was the end of it. And and they were very much that way. So it was like a particular time. And so there's just so much about the band going on at the time, you know, not you know missing gigs and 
strep throat and all these reasons of not playing and canceling tours and Noel walking off and so much volatility and the songs being so good that to just kind of know them through other means is just, is, is, is just too bad. Well, and that's again, the great thing about the podcast. And if we got some listeners who are not as familiar with Oasis, maybe this will uh, change your, change your opinion. Yeah, that'd be great. Thank you.